This is In Jewish History, a podcast of Indiana Jewish history. My name is Michael Brown, and I'm your host. Hi, everyone, and welcome to In Jewish History, a podcast of the Indiana Jewish Historical Society. Uh, Today, our guest is Dr. Rabbi Gary Zola, um, who is coming to us from the American Jewish Archives in Cincinnati uh, to speak to us about uh, the early rabbis in the state of Indiana, the early Hoosier rabbinate. So uh, welcome, uh, Rabbi Dr. Gary Zola. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here and appreciate the opportunity to uh, join you on this podcast. Thank you. And thank you for being here. And thank you for all your hard work there. Um, So, uh, you know, just to kind of frame it, what were the beginnings of uh, Jewish life in the state of Indiana? What was it like for the early Jewish pioneers in Indiana? Well, it's a very good place to start uh, because oftentimes we do not think about how it is that communities began. And, uh, you know, this has to take us back to the answer to your question takes us back to the very beginning of uh, uh, statehood. Uh, uh, and, uh, and when uh, in the late, late 18th century and early 19th century, when uh, the what was called the Old Northwest Territory, which had become a territory that belonged to the new Republic uh, at the time of the Constitution being passed and adopted. Uh, the Old Northwest was divided into various territories and would slowly, each of these territories would become states. Uh, it, we know this part of the country today, we refer to it as the Midwest, but it was called the Old Northwest. And uh, uh, as everybody knows, Indiana becomes a state uh, officially in 1816, uh, uh, about, uh, uh, you know, uh, I guess uh, 10 or 12 years after the state of Ohio. And uh, we know that individual Jews begin to come to various early settlements in the state of Indiana already uh, when the state begins. Um, but what happens, Michael, to these early pioneers is most of them uh, begin to assimilate and acculturate and they disappear because they were coming to this part of the world in order to make a good living and they were willing to come out to what was without question a, fr- a frontier that had no Jewish accoutrements at all, and they would leave wherever it was that they where they began, uh, in order and and were willing to go to a place where there was no Jewish uh, community uh, because their economic needs overtook everything in their lives. And so we really don't know too much about the Jewish 
nature of the lives of these very early people. Uh, we know that various communities that exist today, um, that, uh, that uh, these communities definitely, we know they, that they, they, they had uh, Jewish communities, that, that, that they existed, uh, but uh, we, we don't really know um, uh, too much about them. We don't know what their lives were like early, uh, you know, how they lived their private lives, meaning did they somehow recite prayers, uh, you know, in their homes? Did they, uh, did they try to observe uh, within their little families? It's all guesswork. What happens, though, then, is that uh, as various communities begin to grow and to develop, uh, and we have larger populations, uh, more and more uh, Jewish settlers begin to come to Indiana. And there are a few factors that bring uh, uh, larger numbers of Jews to Indiana. Uh, one important factor is the completion of the Erie Canal in the 1820s. And that will bring uh, or create a, a pathway that will bring uh, uh, a population in general and Jewish uh, uh, entrepreneurs from the East Coast uh, all across the state of New York and then uh, uh, into the Erie Canal so that it, they bring uh, uh, these uh, people into the Ohio Valley region or the central part of the Midwest. And uh, this is one reason why, for example, uh, the city of Fort Wayne, which of course goes back before 18. 20, it goes back to its, it was originally a fort uh, during the, the Revolutionary War, but it, it, it is, if you will, uh, uh, becomes, it takes advantage of this pathway. And other communities, uh, especially in route from, uh, if you will, from uh, uh, the uh, Lake Erie down towards Cincinnati, which already had a Jewish community in place by 1822. Uh, in fact, Michael, it might interest your uh, your listeners that uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, this year, as we speak, is marking the bicentennial of its communal existence, meaning we know that a, a congregation uh, cr was created and began to function uh, in uh, 1822, and uh, that was a direct derivative of the establishment of the first Jewish cemetery in Cincinnati. That is the oldest Jewish burial ground west of the Alleghenies, uh, right here in Cincinnati, which was created in December, right at this month in 1821. That was immediately followed by the creation of uh, of, a, of a congregation. So uh, as people were traveling from uh, across New York and into, you know, across, uh, you know, into the Midwest and then moving down, they would st settle in various communities. And this brought larger numbers of Jews 
to the middle part of the country where they settled. And uh, this is where you eventually begin to, once you have a what you would call a corpus of Jews, where you have a, a significant body, uh, which is, of course, usually more than 12 or 15, uh, uh, the, the number 10 being the, the prayer quorum, you, uh, you begin to see the creation of Jewish communal life, uh, where, uh, and, and this, by the way, Michael, fits the pattern in general. You divide American Jewish history into, in a sense, two large categories. You have what's called the proto-history, which is where you have individuals who travel through various parts of North America. There's no community. There's no organized Jewish life. There's no, and we have no really clear way, in, except in very rare cases, to, to document how these people lived Jewishly, if at all. We, we know some of them intermarried and, and raised, their, uh, raised their children as uh, non-Jews. Uh, but then at some point you have the uh, aggregate number of people in one place and that gives rise to organized Jewish communal life. And that's the second fa phase of uh, history where you begin to talk about Jewish community and, and, uh, and, and so forth. Now, I have been talking all this time only about the uh, the uh, creation of the Erie Canal and how that affected uh, the flow of, of Jewish settlers to Indiana. But uh, there there was another development that that also uh, had its uh, effect on the settlement of Jews in Indiana, and that had to do with uh, the unhappy life of Jews who were living in Central Europe. Uh, this is a period of time. Uh, when uh, Jews were being uh, batted back and forth between uh, given hopeful uh, uh, and optimistic uh, 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 perspective that they might become citizens of various parts of Europe. We're talking largely about the states of Germany and Austria, the Hungarian Austria Hungarian Empire, and other places in Central Europe, including uh, uh, the Alsace-Lorraine region. And uh, uh, these hopeful moments uh, with promises of equality and enfranchisement are then often dashed by regression or reactionary uh, pushback on uh, Jewish rights. And what this means is that many European Jews, along with other liberal Europeans from Central Europe, begin to flow to America. Starting really in the mid-1820s, you have a small uh, uh, influx that grows in the 1830s. And then, of course, as everybody knows, after the failed revolutions of 1848, you have a very large migration wave. So, uh, uh, this is a second factor that will bring uh, Jews from Central Europe to the middle of the country. They, of course, come to the East Coast, but they take advantage of the uh, routes and passageway. Of course, by the 1840s and 1850s, you start to have railroads playing a role in this as well. That's how 
Jews really flow to the middle of the country. And that's really how you begin to, uh, to uh, uh, see Jewish communal life crop up starting in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s in various parts of Indiana. Now, the last thing I'll say, and then I'll let you ask another question, Michael. The last thing I'll say is that uh, uh, we are, as I've emphasized, I'm talking right now about Indiana settlement that largely comes uh, prior to the Civil War and in the years uh, uh, right after the Civil War. There is another flow into Indiana that will occur later in the 19th century uh, when uh, we have a massive immigration, a gargantuan, relatively speaking, immigration from Eastern Europe, Jews from Eastern Europe. And that, that, that there will be new settlements, new areas of Indiana that will be uh, uh, settled and we'll, uh, we'll see uh, the rise of Jewish communal life uh, after in the late 19th century, but I've only I'm only speaking really up to the Civil War period a, at this point. Um, so, who would you say are some of the the early uh, Jewish leaders, um, the early uh, Jewish rabbinical leaders that you would you would note in the state of Indiana? Well. Uh, uh, there, there are there are uh, many uh, important early rabbinical leaders, uh, but uh, perhaps, uh, uh, well, perhaps the first uh, uh, and most uh, significant in terms of uh, the larger picture would be uh, Rabbi Israel Aaron, who uh, uh, serves uh, initially in Fort Wayne. Indiana, and he uh, takes up that pulpit as a full-time rabbi in 1883. Uh, now, maybe we ought to talk a little bit, if you, if it's okay, Michael, uh, about uh, uh, why I, I light upon uh, Rabbi Aaron to begin with, sure. and, and that's because he was one of the first four graduates of the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. Uh, the Hebrew Union College begins in 1875. It opens its doors. It is today the oldest rabbinical seminary in continuous existence in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and uh, it, the first students who arrived in 1875 had to study for eight years. They went... Uh, for uh, four years to high school in the morning here in Cincinnati. And in the afternoon, they studied at the Hebrew Union College, uh, Judaic studies, uh, Bible and rabbinic literature and so forth. Then after four years, they had four additional years where they attended the University of Cincinnati or Cincinnati's college and earned an, an undergraduate degree or a baccalaureate and uh, uh, continuing on in the afternoons studying uh, uh, at the Hebrew Union College. So it wasn't until 1883 that the very first class was ordained. There were four American-trained rabbis, the first ever ordained in the United States of America, right here in Cincinnati, 
And from here, they went out to serve uh, in different pulpits. And Israel Allen, Israel Aaron, excuse me, uh, uh, served in Fort Wayne, which was a very early uh, uh, congregation, one of the earliest in the state of Indiana. Uh, and, and that is uh, largely because of its location uh, and importance in terms of the uh, transportation routes uh, leading uh, from uh, Indiana down uh, into the Ohio uh, uh, Valley. So uh, 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 w one reason why I mention Rabbi Israel Aaron uh, is because uh, he gives me the opportunity, Michael, to talk about the establishment of the Hebrew Union College, which uh, a, 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 an Indiana lay leader uh, actually played a crucial role in, uh, in establishing the Hebrew Union College. Uh, so uh, with your permission, I'll tell that story. Sure, it's uh, a wonderful story. Right. So we have this Central European Jew. Uh, his name is Henry Adler, and uh, he is a traditional-minded Jew. And uh, as the story goes, <clears throat> he was a businessman and uh, came to Cincinnati, Ohio, but uh, opened up a store in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. And uh, it, I'm given to understand that almost every Sabbath, he would catch a local train, uh, which did exist, and link uh, 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 Lawrenceburg to Cincinnati. So on Fridays, he would close up his store in Lawrenceburg, Indiana, which is uh, by car, I don't know, about 40 minutes or 45 minutes from Cincinnati. And I'm given to understand that you could, you could be in downtown Cincinnati from Lawrenceburg by train in 25 or 30 minutes. Uh, and so he would spend the Sabbath. Uh, here in Cincinnati. He considered himself a, uh, a Cincinnatian, but he worked all week long at his store in Lawrenceburg. Now, as he aged, uh, he eventually retired and closed his store or left his store, and he spent his retirement years back in Cincinnati. And as uh, it, it, and, and he, it, it's interesting to note that he was a member not of Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise's congregation. He was not a member of uh, Dr. Philipson's congregation. Uh, he was, uh, uh, well, actually, it would, be, it would have been um, Rabbi Lilienthal's congregation at that time, that is, B'nai Israel. He, uh, he uh, was a, a member of uh, Adith Israel congregation, which in Cincinnati is today the conservative one, the main, one of the main conservative congregations in our community. But in those days, it was a traditional congregation that uh, served, uh, was created by Polish immigrants who came here in the 1840s. I believe Adith Israel was created in the year 1848. So uh, Henry Adler was actually a member of that congregation. So we must surmise somehow that uh, uh, Henry Adler uh, is somehow uh, was, was able to get in contact with, made a friendship with, had a relationship with Isaac Mayer Wise, knowing him here in Cincinnati. It's interesting to note that even though he was not a member of uh, Wise's congregation, he was a member of Adith Israel, 
he quite clearly was taken by Isaac Mayer Wise's long-held dream to establish a rabbinical school in Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, Mr. Adler made uh, quite a bit of uh, money uh, in his store in Lawrenceburg, and he uh, proposed a matching grant, a challenge grant idea that, uh, that really launched the Hebrew Union College. Uh, Mr. Adler gave to uh, Isaac Mayer Wise and his congregation $10,000, which was a tremendous amount of money uh, in those days. And it came with a document that stipulated, it, 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 it was a contract, if you will, and the contract stipulated that uh, uh, that uh, the, the rabbi had uh, two years to create uh, a Hebrew theological seminary, and that if he could do that, then they could keep the initial gift. That if this failed, uh, then the money would be returned to the family. Now, this really uh, uh, gave a lot of impetus. It spurred the uh, project forward. And uh, Rabbi Wise uh, uh, put this challenge before uh, the union that he had created of congregations. By the way, Adith Israel was at that time a member of the union. That union was called the Union of American Hebrew Congregations. And uh, indeed, that was uh, created in 1873. And in accordance with the stipulation of the challenge grant, uh, Wise was, in, was able to open the doors of the Hebrew Union College in 1875. And Israel Aaron was present when that school began. He studied here for eight years and then went off to serve in Fort Wayne. After leaving Fort Wayne, he goes on to a very distinguished career in Buffalo, New York, where uh, he uh, was uh, uh, extremely prominent. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Rabbi Aaron uh, was the first of the four ordinees uh, to pass away. Uh, he died... Uh, uh, he was the first in that class to pass away, I believe, in 1912, if, I, if my memory serves me correctly. I, I have to double check on that. But uh, uh, that's why I would pick Israel Aaron to light upon. And now, uh, 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 there are so many uh, interesting figures uh, uh, in uh, Indiana's rabbinate. Uh, I, I don't know uh, uh, where, where exactly... Uh, to begin, uh, perhaps uh, uh, we we could also talk about another early graduate of uh, of the Hebrew Union College, uh, uh, Morris Feuerlich, who uh, was an immigrant uh, from Hungary, <clears throat> comes to the Hebrew Union College in the late 1890s. Uh, he was. Uh, uh, I, uh, you know, at, uh, in his late teens, and is ordained uh, by the Hebrew Union College in the year 1901. 
So that means he studied with Isaac Mayer Wise for most of his years as a student, but Wise dies in 1900. So uh, Feuerlicht uh, uh, spent one year uh, at the college, his last year after Dr. Wise passed away. And uh, the reason I mention him is uh, I believe he uh, spent his entire rabbinate in Indiana. Uh, That's correct. Yes. He, he, yes. He, he uh, uh, begins his, he goes right from student years to uh, a Temple Israel of Lafayette. Uh, 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 and uh, then uh, uh, he goes to uh, the capital city of, of, Indi of, Indi of Indiana. That's Indianapolis, of course, where he is until... Uh, the end of his career, he retires there. Uh, he uh, he's he's there literally almost a half century, and uh, uh, retires in 1951. Can you imagine that he he's ordained in 1901? So 50 years later, he retires. Spent his whole career in Indiana. I think he died in '59, and uh, uh, but but uh, uh, a very remarkable figure. I know you also wanted me to mention uh, uh, what you might call uh, is a, uh, uh, a passing shadow in Indiana, and that is uh, Rabbi Judah Wexler, uh, who uh, is, is uh, another immigrant rabbi, kind of an interesting man, as, as we were speaking about him, Michael, um, because also, uh, 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 you know, he, he comes to uh, the United States as an immigrant, uh, but much earlier uh, uh, than uh, uh, the uh, uh, others we've been talking about. Uh, uh, Wexler was born in Bavaria. Uh, he's one of the, comes from uh, Central Europe and uh, had an Orthodox rabbinical training. And he comes to the United States in 1857 and uh, uh, lands a pulpit in Portsmouth, Ohio. And uh, uh, this is where he serves as the religious leader there for a few years uh, until he is called uh, uh, to um, Indianapolis Hebrew Congregation. So he's, in a sense, a predecessor to... Um, uh, to Rabbi Feuerlicht by uh, probably 40 years or so. At any rate, what's very interesting about Wexler is th this man Wexler uh, comes to Indiana in its uh, early, meaning to the uh, capital of India, uh, the state, Indianapolis, in the early years of its Jewish community. And here this Orthodox rabbi, it's sort of like the story of the Frisco kid, uh, he, he comes to uh, the middle of the country and he somehow is able to uh, adapt himself and acculturate and he becomes a more modernist rabbi. He uh, has the ability to uh, recognize that uh, orthodoxy out in the frontier is not feasible and he'll need to be uh, uh, more flexible. And so uh, he 
he uh, is able to acclimate himself to the reformist traditions that were settled, that began to emerge in Indianapolis at that time. And one of the amazing things for considering his background is he, he becomes very active in interfaith relations, in uh, working with the Christian community. Uh, and uh, the rumor is that he uh, was uh, uh, the very first uh, rabbi to preach in a church in, uh, in Indianapolis uh, uh, and, and uh, so forth. So uh, uh, he doesn't stay long. I think he's only in Indianapolis for a few years and then he goes on to another pulpit. But uh, uh, he represents the, um, the, uh, um, what the, the, the reform tradition in the middle of the country uh, and interestingly, how he, so interesting how a man who was raised Orthodox, ordained as an Orthodox rabbi, uh, manages to acclimate himself to the needs of his uh, and the realities of his local community. It's fascinating in his last years, he chose to come all the way back to Indianapolis after he had lived in, I think uh, it was the Dakotas. He tried to settle a. Uh, um, a uh, agricultural colony for uh, Russian Jewish immigrants, and then I believe he was in the Deep South where he had a pulpit, and then he came all the way back to Indiana to live out his last years, and is buried in Indianapolis. Uh, just a fascinating, fascinating figure. Yeah, we don't know really why that is. Uh, at least I don't know. Uh, but what one can assume, you know, this I, I'll, I'll liken it to situations that have occurred in our own day and age. When that happens, it's often uh, that uh, uh, those uh, that part of the world where people return to to live out the end of their days and and uh, so forth, that usually means there there there's very warm uh, friendships and warm memories of that time, such that uh, it's where a person wishes to spend the you know, waning years of his life uh, among people that he knew in his youth who were friends and so forth. I mean, what I've read about uh, Wexler is he, he didn't leave Indianapolis because he was unhappy. He left it because they were having financial difficulties at the time. And, uh, uh, you know, this, this is like, for example, Michael, I have, um, I have a, a relative. My great grandfather was a, uh, a Hazan here in America, and uh, I've recreated his career. I've retraced all the different places he went, and I've come to the conclusion that my great grandfather was either a very horrible Hazan, a very terrible cantor, uh, and therefore was booted from one pulpit to the next because he had about 16 or 17 different pulpits. Or the other possibility, which I'd like to think is the case, is that he was a capable person and would leave one pulpit to go to another pulpit if the salary was fetching. And uh, this is what I think is probably was at, at, at work with Wexler because uh, he had a very fine you know, reputation, if you read the documents from his various communities, he was not uh, a, a man of, uh, you know, uh, what you might say, controversy, uh, at least as far as I know. Um, 
but rather move from pulpit to pulpit, probably to earn more money. And then you also have uh, rabbis like uh, Rabbi Max Merritt of uh, of Ev- who was in Evansville until uh, um, 1919, and then it seemed like he had a different pulpit every two or three years. He was moving all the way to California, and then you also have rabbis like uh, uh, Rabbi Mayor Messing uh, of Indianapolis, who was there for 40 years before Rabbi Foy elected at uh, at, I- at Indianapolis Hebrew Congregation. Uh, but it's really fascinating um, comparing the journeyman court, uh, quarterback rabbis compared to the rabbi who spends, you know, 40 years in the same pulpit. Well, uh, you know, uh, this is, you're right, you're right. And uh, I'm glad you met, mentioned Evansville because, you know, Evansville is, if you know, is an example. If you recall, we were talking at the beginning of the podcast about settlement in Indiana, uh, you know, before the Civil War and, you know, up through the Civil War. But uh, Evansville is a city that grows as a result of Eastern European migration uh, and its congregation, uh, and, and, it, and it becomes significant then. Uh, you know, you have in the middle of the country, you have these interesting uh, histories to various communities. Some communities come into existence as a result of the Central European migration. Uh, and then some of their those communities fade out and don't come back into existence, little teeny communities. Uh, then there are other communities that come into existence uh, sort of uh, from their like a, like a, you know a, a spontaneous generation when when the Eastern Europeans come. And then there are those communities that are renewed or enlarged by uh, the arrival of the Eastern Europeans in the late 19th century. For example, Fort Wayne uh, and Indianapolis. You know, these are places that started earlier. They had lots of Central European Jews at the beginning, but they are enlarged by the arrival of the Eastern European Jews. Uh, And uh, you, 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 you know, the other point I wanted to make is, uh, you know, uh, when you say, uh, uh, these, there's these people who came and spent, you know, their whole careers in Indianapolis or in, in, in various pulpits in Indiana. And, uh, you know, that's not always the case today. Well, Indiana and the Midwest in general is, um, it's it's a it, you know it's a changing Jewish reality in the Midwest. Uh, uh, these little communities, the smaller cities that were uh, so important as business centers where Jews could come establish some kind of business, whether it was uh, fur business, whether it was um, a dry goods business, whether it was a department store type business or general, what was earlier called general goods. Uh, uh, these little communities, uh, uh, many of them, uh, you know, are, uh, are, are, you know, sort of come into existence and have left. Uh, one example is uh, Peru, uh, Peru, Indiana, which uh, had its congregation maybe for only a few years at the end of the, uh, there's a cemetery there and had a, had a, uh, uh, a congregation just for a short while. Um, so today, uh, not, you know, not all of the, 
uh, uh, not all of the uh, uh, communities are able to sustain rabbinic leadership for a whole career. Uh, if they still are able to have full-time rabbis, often it will be a pulpit that someone will have for a few years and then move to another pulpit. Uh, of course, there's there are exceptions to this, right? Because in Indianapolis, you have... Uh, 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 really great rabbis, uh, uh, rap, my friends, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Sasso uh, and uh, uh, Rabbi uh, Dennis and, and Sandy. And uh, they, um, they, of course, have spent almost their entirety of their career together in, in Indianapolis. And what I think is so fascinating is we were talking about immigrant rabbis, but you know some of the small towns, some of the smaller cities that you were talking about, uh, greats like Rabbi Leo Franklin, who was born um, in Cambridge City, Indiana, um, near Kendallville, Indiana, um, who had a great pulpit in Detroit, and then of course uh, Rabbi Phillipson. Um, why do you think that sometimes smaller communities produce such? rabbinic giants uh you know you would think that uh you know a really you know big pulpit rabbi would come from a large city but um that wasn't always the case was it no and i'm 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 just going to hypothesize because that does occur to this day uh and um uh, uh here here are my here's my answer to your question i think that in smaller communities uh the the small jewish community uh uh, they become, if you will, exemplars of Jewish life in uh, the surrounding non-Jewish community. In those days, of course, it was almost entirely Christian. And uh, uh, so uh, uh, as you grow up, as uh, in those days, again, a young man, uh, today it could be a young man or a young woman, and you're growing up, uh, you know, you, you sort of become the exemplar. You become the representative of Jewish life because there are so few in these little cities. E even if there's a congregation, it, it, the relative numbers are such that it, it, the, the Jewish community uh, is small and it, it, the number of children and so forth are, are few in number. So, you know, this uh, experience of being the representative Jew, of being the one who's always explaining Judaism to neighbors and so forth, that works its way into some young men and then eventually men and women, and it drives them to want to be teachers of Judaism. Now that's number one. Number two, uh, Michael, is that um, one of the most important features of a successful rabbinate in the North American world, especially when you leave the, the immigrant city of New York and you come to uh, uh, any place that's outside of New York. And I don't care whether you're talking about the Midwest or the South or, uh, uh, you know, Western uh, Pennsylvania, you know, or, or uh, the Dakotas. It doesn't matter. When you leave uh, that, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, if you will, um, crucible of New York uh, City, uh, one of the key factors of success is... Uh, do you know how to interpret Judaism, to make Judaism understandable to the non-Jewish neighbors? Can, can you represent our heritage in such a way that it becomes 
dignified and admired uh, by the majority religious tradition. And if you've grown up in a small community like we're talking about with the rabbis you've mentioned, uh, you, you are reared in an environment where you learn how to do that. You know how, you, you, know, you are a native son. And uh, I believe those two factors, being the representative Jew, being the one who's always called upon to uh, or, or pointed to as the uh, uh, as the uh, 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 the iconic Jew of a community uh, that that drives a person or inspires within a uh, sometimes a, a people to want to teach Judaism and then uh, that awareness of how to function with the general society uh, often will create. Uh, and uh, a, uh, uh, a recipe, if you will, it, it fulfills a recipe for real success in major communities. You know, one of the topics you're talking about is, you know, dealing with the non-Jewish world as a small minority. And this really reminded me of a memoir that I read from the American Jewish Archives by Rabbi Abraham Kronbach, who grew up in Indianapolis, talking about explaining Judaism to his Christian neighbors, uh, helped him gain a profound sense of, uh, of, of empathy, of like what it's like to be an outsider. Um, so, you know, could you tell us a little bit about uh, Rabbi Abraham Kronbach because he's so important to uh, the later to developments within the Reform movement, uh, even to the even to this very day. Yes, uh, I'd be happy to, and I'm so glad. You know, and maybe you can help me with something. Uh, uh, you know, because I know you're uh, uh, Michael. You're you certainly know a, a tremendous amount about uh, uh, Jewish life in Indiana. Um, I recall seeing a little tribute to um, uh, Rabbi Kronbach uh, at Indiana University uh, years and years ago. Uh, uh, I believe it was a tree dedicated to his memory. Does that ring a bell with you? Uh, uh, have you ever heard of that? Because uh, it's so many years ago, I, I cannot recall where it was on the campus. Uh, uh, but I, I seem to recall it. Oh, that's fascinating. It's the first time I, I've heard about that. I'd like to look into that. You just reminded me of that. But uh, uh, let, me, let me put a plug in here uh, as I begin to talk about Rabbi Kronbach, um, who was born in Indianapolis. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have Rabbi Kronbach's entire collection here at the American Jewish Archives. And uh, uh, I, I just want to uh, say that uh, uh, the, the wonderful work uh, of, you know, the, Indiana, the Indiana uh, uh, Jewish Historical Society, which strives, you know, to preserve and to promulgate the history of Jewish life in, in the state of Indiana, uh, the American Jewish Archives, which is just this year celebrating its 75th, uh, anniversary, 75th anniversary of its founding, is today the largest catalog collection of documentary evidence on the history of Jewish life in America and located right here on the Cincinnati campus of Hebrew Union College. Uh, and uh, 
many of the uh, facts that uh, uh, we've been discussing here and the ideas and, uh, and so forth, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, they, 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 I've learned them because we preserve this history here. And so uh, the, the uh, Historical Society uh, and uh, the AJA, we, we share a common mission, don't we? And we thank you for that because it, it broadens our understanding and gives us a basis um, and inspiration for what we do every day. Um, you know, seeing what you have there and trying to see, you know, what's missing in a community that we can find to fill in those blanks of our of our collective memory. And we couldn't do that without the American Jewish Archives. Um, no, it, and we it, it, thank you for all the hard work you do there. Well, and thank you and to all those who support the uh, uh, Indiana Jewish Historical Society. Now, uh, we could do, and maybe we should, Michael, we could do a whole podcast on Rabbi Kronbach. He is, he is really an unusual, uh, remarkable figure, and I'll try to uh, summarize it. Uh, he, uh, as, as we said, he's, he's born and reared... Um, in Indianapolis, and uh, he, uh, you know, does, he, he speaks about, you're right, that uh, he grew up in entirely, almost entirely in a Christian neighborhood where uh, he writes about experiencing anti-Semitism and, uh, and also extreme poverty in the neighborhood in which um, uh, uh, he grew up. Uh, he uh, uh, decides... Uh, uh, as a high school student, that he wants to become a rabbi. And uh, he comes to Cincinnati in 1898, uh, where he pursues his degree, uh, his rabbinic diploma. And uh, he, uh, uh, he's ordained and uh, uh, goes out into the congregation. The uh, very first pulpit he has is back home in Indiana, in uh, South Bend. Uh, and uh, 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 he has a few different pulpits. He, he uh, works in New York briefly, and then in Akron, and then he becomes uh, a professor at the Hebrew Union College. And uh, his area is, uh, it's call, it was called social studies, but what we might call it today would be uh, uh, contemporary Jewish life. Uh, and he, uh, uh, he is, uh, I mean, what makes him so remarkable and interesting, uh, Michael, uh, Mr. Uh, Rabbi Kronbach, is uh, his passionate commitment to certain ideological stances, uh, uh, regardless of whether they were popular or not. So, for example, he remained a lifelong uh, pacifist. Uh, and uh, to the best of my knowledge, he never abandoned his pacifism, even during World War II, which, uh, which uh, was uh, uh, really not a very popular time for Jews to espouse pacifism uh, in light of the disaster that had been fall, befallen uh, European Jewry. And perhaps uh, Rabbi Kronbach's most uh, was best known for his 
opposition to uh, uh, capital punishment. And he's catapulted into national renown when he assumes leadership towards the end of his career um, uh, of a movement to try to prevent uh, the Rosenbergs, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, uh, who were uh, convicted of treason uh, in uh, early 1950s. It's uh, Dr. Kronbach, now an elderly man, who leads uh, and spearheads an initiative to try to prevent them from being executed. And he writes, uh, he campaigns for this and writes letters and suffers from tremendous pushback and, uh, and uh, 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 hostile response to his initiatives. Both Jews and non-Jews had little sympathy for the Rosenbergs at that time. And uh, that he, he, he will not uh, be silenced. He, he speaks out despite being criticized bitterly. And uh, what's also interesting then is he actually officiates at their funeral after, uh, after they are executed. Uh, he goes to Brooklyn uh, and uh, uh, when uh, very few people wanted to be associated with them in the Jewish community, uh, Kronbach uh, does so. Uh, the last thing I'll say about Kronbach, and then maybe we should return to him, uh, you know, uh, sure. for a whole session one day, is uh, that uh, Kronbach loved young people. And uh, starting in 1952, when uh, the first reform Jewish camp was created in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, uh, now we have uh, uh, more than a dozen of these camps, summer camps, educational facilities. Kronbach, now a very elderly man, would go to uh, the summer camps uh, 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 in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, where he would teach uh, young people. And I have met many people now, they're in their 70s and 80s, who remember as children being at these summer camps and remembering and being mesmerized by Kronbach's very angelic personality. Uh, we have pictures of him, by the way, Michael, at camp, where he's, he, everybody's running around, of course, in short pants and, uh, uh, and so forth, uh, whereas Kronbach would be dressed in a three-piece suit at summer camp. Uh, and uh, he lived a long life. Uh, died in eight, in 65. And I want to mention to you, Michael, that I, as a student, uh, I came here as a student uh, in, in 1978, in the fall of 1978, after returning from uh, my year in Israel. Uh, I actually met uh, uh, Marion uh, uh, Rose Kronbach, uh, um, uh, uh, his, uh, his widow. She was a very uh, elderly woman at the time, but periodically would come to services. Uh, so uh, I felt a connection in that regard. Now, I want to tell you one funny story, if I may, from uh, uh, Indianapolis that that involves me. And um, so those those who know me know that uh, that uh, one of my trademark uh, qualities is uh, I've been blessed with a crimson pate. I have uh, I've had a bright red hair from the time I was. Uh, uh, born and although it's now 
lighter and lighter, it still has a lot of color. And about 25 years ago, I was invited to deliver the inaugural address in Indianapolis at IHC, at the Indianapolis Hebrew Congregation, when uh, Rabbi Eric Graham, uh, of blessed memory, was um, installed as its senior rabbi. And because it's Indianapolis, uh, whenever such a thing happens, uh, being the capital city, <clears throat> uh, very important people will come to, uh, you know, to celebrate with the Jewish community. And so the mayor was there and uh, various religious leaders were there. And uh, after, the, uh, after I spoke and during the uh, uh, reception afterwards, uh, uh, one of the most seniors uh, from the Catholic Church uh, was present and came over to me and said, uh, Rabbi, uh, thank you for your comments. Uh, Rabbi, where, where are your people from? So I, um, I was uh, surprised and I said, well, um, my family comes from Chicago. I was born in Chicago. I raised in Evanston, Illinois. And uh, he says, no, 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 uh, before, before that, where in Europe did they come from? So I said, well, uh, my entire family comes from Russia. They're all Eastern European Jews. He said, no, no, before that, where did they come from before that? And I said, uh, you know, uh, Monsignor, you, you, you stumped me. I, I really don't know. I said, I suppose they originally came from the Middle East uh, long ago, but I, I don't know anything more than that. He said, oh, Rabbi, he says, uh, you, 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 you certainly, you must have relatives from Ireland. So uh, I, I laughed and I had a good comeback, Michael. I immediately said to him, I said, Monsignor, I said, I may be full of Blarney. I said, but I'm not Irish. <laughs> wow. So I, I, that's a, a warm memory. And, and the last thing I want to say, because uh, I know we've talked for you know, probably more than we should have, uh, but but um, I do want to say that all of my children, all four of my children, uh, uh, went to uh, the Goldman Union Camp Institute in Zionsville, Indiana, where uh, I attribute uh, uh, much of their very strong Jewish identity to the wonderful years they've spent there. And I don't think we should forget to mention the, the, that that's an amazing contribution to Jewish life, the creation and sustenance of a, a Jewish educational camp right outside of Indianapolis. And uh, I, it's my hope and prayer that all of my grandchildren will go there as well. Amen. Uh, it is a wonderful camp and everyone who went there, they all have amazing stories to share uh, with me. Uh, going all the way back to its earliest years, uh, even before it was Gucci. Right. <laughs> so um, thank you so much for um, sharing all of your um, time and uh, discussing about uh, Indiana's Jewish history and all the different rabbinic personalities. There's so many more that I'm sure we could talk about for ages, but um uh, it was uh, it was a real pleasure. And, yes, uh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. All the best. Thank uh, you. Thank you. You too, and my and all my friends in uh, in uh, the Jewish community of Indianapolis. Certainly, certainly. Be well.
Thank you for listening to the In Jewish History podcast, a project of the Indiana Jewish Historical Society. Look us up on the web at ijhs.org.